Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. As we continue this series, we're looking at the ways that when people come into encounters with Jesus, it's always disorienting. Jesus comforts, Jesus cares, Jesus heals, yet there's no way to come into contact with Jesus without being disoriented by him. And today we're going to be talking about the good guys and the bad guys and how Jesus disorients us even as we think about that. Now, we might not think about good guys and bad guys now, but when I was a kid, that was always part of whatever whatever game we were playing. So if we were playing football, if I was playing football with my friends in the front yard, uh, I, was, I made sure I was on the good guys team. We were the Miami Dolphins. And the opposing team was either like the New York Jets or the Buffalo Bills, one of those evil teams, right? And we always made sure that the Dolphins won. But if I played with my sister, you know, we, we always would do like, maybe like Disney movies, and we made sure we're the good guys. You know, we're Aladdin and Jasmine. We're not Jafar, the bad guy. We're the good guys. Uh, you know, even when I was playing alone with my action figures, uh, and I was, you know, being imaginative in my room, uh, if I was Luke Skywalker fighting Darth Vader, I made sure that Luke Skywalker won because he's what? He's the good guy. He's the good guy. Well, here's the thing. I think if we really think about the good guys and bad guys, if we're honest, if we're reflective, if we looked honestly at ourselves, we tend not to change much. In other words, we still believe in good guys and we still believe in bad guys. It's just not about action figures or imaginative play. It's about how we view the real world. I mean, whenever you get in relational friction with someone else, and I'm not talking about a minor disagreement, but whenever something big happens, you think you're right, and you think the other person's wrong. You think you're the good guy, and you think the other person is the bad guy. And we see that whether it's a one-on-one relationship or whether it's conflict in the workplace or whether it's in the church even. But if we even go bigger than that, our culture right now thinks about itself in terms of good guys and bad guys. Now, here's the funny thing. Everyone agrees that there is real evil in the world, and yet there's so little moral consensus about where that evil is. Everyone agrees that we need justice in our society, but there's so little agreement on what justice actually looks like and who gets to define it. Everyone thinks that the way we do politics in our country is just poisonous. Yet most people think it's the other side's fault that it's poisoned. We think in terms of good guys and bad guys. And the truth is when the bad guys open their mouth, like if we turn on the TV and we hear something that the bad guys say, it just feels so predictable, doesn't it? Like as soon as they start talking, you know, I knew they were going to say that. I knew exactly that they were going to say that. And so we just shake our heads and write them off. Jesus tells us a story, a story that's applicable as we think about the good guys and the bad guys. 
And it applies whether you're in a marriage right now and you're struggling like, I'm the good guy in this marriage and my spouse is the bad guy, or whether you're looking at a total society where you go, those people over there are evil and my tribe is the one that gets it right. Jesus tells us a story that deals with the reality of evil in the world and yet at the same time disorients us about what it means to be good and what it means to be bad. Jesus, in Luke 18, tells a story that's meant to knock us off our feet. Let me pray for us and we'll jump in. Lord, we pray that you would be with us as we explore your word, that you would touch our hearts in the way that we need to be touched, that you would soften where we need to be softened, and that you would help us to find mercy where we need mercy. And all God's people said, Luke 18, verse 9, he, Jesus, told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Now, I love the wording that it says there, that Jesus has a specific purpose for telling this parable. It's for some people who said, I'm right, and therefore everyone else is wrong. Now, in the ESV, it uses the word contempt. If you can go to the next slide. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And while the word from the CSB, which is looked down on, that's more accessible, I think what the ESV says here, contempt helps get our attention a little bit more. Now I looked it up on the internet and a definition for contempt is the feeling that a person or thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. So Jesus is speaking into our lives in the places where we think some person or some group or some tribe is beneath us. Because we think we're right and we think they're wrong. Now Jesus uses as an example in the story a Pharisee and a tax collector. In verse 10, he says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now in this story, the Pharisee views himself as a good guy. And technically he is. He's around the temple a lot, which is the place where God lives. And as a Pharisee, he's responsible for upkeeping the religious life of the people of God. He's responsible for guarding the traditions that help people follow God. He's responsible for cultivating the teaching from the Old Testament to help people follow God. And the Pharisees were very concerned about doing everything in a way that was pleasing to God in order that they could be righteous. The tax collector, however, is on the opposite end of the spectrum. The tax collector was seen as someone who was evil by not only the Pharisees, but by the people of God. And the reasons that the tax collector were viewed as evil was because they were participating with the oppressive government from Rome. So Rome had colonized Israel, and the tax collectors had say, listen, Rome is in power over us. Rather than being under their power, I'm going to join sides with them to take money from our own people. So they were viewed as traitors. But not only that, it wasn't just that they were traitors, it was that they were cheats as well. The rules regarding how much money they could collect from taxes, well, 
the rules were a little ambiguous. So you might owe five, but the tax collector says you owe 15, and he gets to keep 10. So not only were they seen as people who had joined with an oppressive government, but they were dishonest and they were cheats. Now, as they're worshiping in the same room in the temple, the Pharisee is praying and he looks over and he sees the, the tax collector and he can't help but feel contempt. And really, we can't blame him. The tax collector is not a good guy. In verse 11, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, now again, the, the language in the CSB is accessible, but there's a little bit more of a punch that we get when we look at the ESV, because the ESV says, instead of greedy, it says, it says an extortioner. In other words, it's not just that this guy wants money and money and money, it's, will, it's that he's willing to take it from you. He's willing to cheat in order to get the money from you that's not his. And not only is he unrighteous, but the ESV translates it unjust. And that's exactly what the tax collector is. He's not just. He doesn't follow principles of justice. And so as the Pharisee looks over and sees the tax collector and sees all the other people there, he's thankful. He's thankful that he's not greedy and he doesn't take money from other people. He's, he's thankful that he follows principles of justice. He's thankful that he hasn't cheated on his wife. He's thankful that he's not a tax collector. And to be quite frank, I'm thankful too. I don't want to be like that guy. But then he focuses the prayer on himself. In verse 12, he says this, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything that I get. And I have to be quite honest with you, I would look up to that. Think, think about someone who everything that they get, they give one-tenth of it to God. They're so devoted to God that everything that's theirs they give one-tenth of it to him. That's some devotion. But not only that, I know many of you struggle in the morning to get up and pray, but this person, this Pharisee, sets aside two times a week where they deprive themselves of food in order to focus prayer on God. That is some devotion. That is some love for God. But yet, Jesus disorients us when we go to the next verse. He continues to tell the story. And he says in verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There this evil, unjust tax collector is in the temple in the presence of God and he can't even bear to look up, and he shouldn't look up. But not only that, he beats his chest, which was the practice in that time of a woman who was mourning. In other words, he shouldn't be doing that. Men don't do that in that culture. And while the Pharisee has contempt for the tax collector, we see that the tax collector actually has contempt for himself. He despises himself. Everything that the Pharisee thinks about the tax collector is absolutely true, and the tax collector knows it. And Jesus says this, though. I tell you, 
this one, the tax collector, went down from the temple to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How disorienting. None of us want to be the unjust person. None of us want to be the traitor. None of us want to be the person who knows the evil in their life so much so that they say, everything everything bad you say about me is true. And yet Jesus says here, that's the unjust person who goes away justified. That it's the unrighteous person who's declared righteous. It's so disorienting when we think about the good guys and the bad guys. It disorients us because we see that thinking that we're the good guy is actually quite intoxicating. It's quite intoxicating to be certain that you're the good guy. It's intoxicating because contempt is intoxicating. It is deadly and it is destructive. And so often we can be right about someone else being wrong, but we're wrong about the fact that we're right. Did you catch the difference? So often we can be right about someone else being wrong. And at the same time, we can be wrong about ourselves being right. And when we miss that difference, it fills us with contempt for another person. And contempt is deadly and contempt is destructive. The Gottman Institute is a a marriage enrichment institute. And they, they really try and help couples through counseling and through tools and through books uh, have a, a wonderful marriage and grow in their marriage. But the Gottman Institute says, listen, we can sit down with a couple and in an hour we can tell whether they're going to make it or not. And the reason that we can tell if they're going to make it is because we look for one thing. And if that one thing is present, they might not make it. And that one thing is contempt. Once people are convinced that the other person is wrong, and they don't have the vision to see that they're not right, marriage heading down the tubes. Contempt is that deadly and destructive in one-on-one relationships and in marriages and even in our culture. See, one of the things that we have going on right now is that every group and every tribe in our culture, whether it's political or cultural, everyone believes they're the good guys. Everyone believes they're the good guys. Now, I find what's interesting in this passage is Jesus kind of frames it uh, as two individuals. It is a Pharisee and a tax collector, but at the same time, they have this group identity. The Pharisee is part of a group of people called the Pharisees. The tax collector is part of a group of people who are called the tax collectors. They have political differences. The Pharisee said, we will not side with Rome and anyone who does is evil. The tax collector said, you know what? Let's join forces with Rome because that'll make life easier. So it's not just that one was self-righteous and one had contempt for himself. It is that they had different political agendas. And I find that helpful right now because in our culture, politics are so messy. Political partisanship rules. Everyone is tribal about what they believe. And some people say, well, well, Jesus wasn't political. And that's not actually true. Jesus was political. Even the statement, Jesus is Lord, is a political statement. 
Jesus is a king. You can't help but think about that politically. The, the gospel has political implications. It's right to say that Jesus wasn't partisan, but Jesus was political. And, and we, instead of having our deepest allegiance to King Jesus, you and I have sold out often for something lesser. We have sold out for a tribe that is not Jesus's. Now, if we look at the Pharisees, their tribe was about serving God. It's a great thing. It's good. The tax collectors, they were about cheating their own people and joining with an oppressive government. That is not good. Seems so easy, right? Good guys, bad guys. But yet the Pharisee is so blind to the heirs of his own group. He's so distant from seeing the ways that his own tribe fails. In Luke eleven forty two, it's all right. We'll go to the next one. Go to Luke eleven forty two. Jesus calls out the Pharisees and says this: "But woe to you, Pharisees! You give a tenth of mint, rue, and every kind of herb, and you bypass justice and love for God." These things you should do without neglecting the others. See, see, it's the very thing that the Pharisees focused on, giving a tenth of everything they owned, even down to all the spices and herbs that were in their spice rack. It was that very thing that caused them to see that, not to see that they had neglected bigger things, that their agenda was so uh, specialized that they missed the big picture. What if we're so convinced of the immorality of another that it blinds us to the ways that we're immoral? What if we're so convinced that someone else is unjust that we cannot see the ways that we are unjust? It's not that the tax collector wasn't sinful. It's not that the issues aren't there. It's just that's not all there is. Harold Bustle wrote this, he says, refusing to deal with our own potential for evil can make even our goodness dangerous. Refusing to deal with our own potential for evil can make even our goodness dangerous. What we tend to do is rearrange things so that we can be the good guys. Now, in front of my house, we have an adjustable basketball hoop. And I love putting that thing down to about six and a half feet. And I'll tell you, with my three little girls, I dominate. I'm unstoppable. I can dunk without even having to jump. I can stand, and if I'm, if I'm being a little, a, little, you know, a little saucy, they can't get a shot off. But you see, you're laughing, right? Because I've adjusted things so that they fit me. And then all of a sudden, I'm great and my kids have such a long way to go. I don't do that often, I do it on occasion. But, but you see, see, because I'm excelling, I'm blind to the fact of how I've changed the rules to the game so it's harder for them, it's, it's easier for me. It's not that the tax collector, um, it's not that the tax collector wasn't evil. It, it's just that so often, the evil of another person blinds us from our own evil. And even we put these strict guidelines on what it means for another person to repent or another group to repent. 
And repentance is always the process when you are involved with evil. And yet sometimes we can make it so difficult for the other person to even repent. I love this passage from Luke chapter three. Luke chapter three, John the Baptist is preaching and all these people are feeling convicted of their sins. And the tax collectors are feeling convicted of their sins. And what, John, what happens is all these tax collectors come to John and say, can we be baptized? And John's disciples are like, what do we do with these guys? These guys are repenting. And John says, tell them, don't collect any more than you have been authorized. Now, he doesn't tell them to stop being tax collectors, although you could probably make a good argument, but he does tell them not to cheat people. And so often, I think we are so convinced of what the other side needs to do in order to not be evil that we miss the fact that we've made it impossible for them to repent. What happens at that time is not only are we blind to our own failures, but oftentimes the gospel loses its clarity and focus for us. The good news becomes, good news, we're the good guys, and you're the bad guys. I want to challenge you in our political climate. You know, as you have your positions on certain issues, have you taken the time to really hear what the opposing side has to say? Now, now I'm not talking about YouTube clips and Fox News or CNN that just shows the worst of the other side. I'm not talking about that. Like, have you ever really engaged positions from the other side? Because if you haven't, you're just dealing with caricatures. And I'm not saying there's not evil out there. There is real evil in our country. Yet at the same time, we are so discipled by hot takes that fuel our contempt for each other. One of the things I try and do is I, I listen to people who don't fit in either category, and I really like that. Two, two of the people that I've really appreciated are um, the Truth Over Tribe podcast and the, the AND campaign. Truth Over Tribe, there on your left, and the AND campaign there on your right. They both wrote books about what their agenda is, but they also both have podcasts, and they tend to not fall on one side of the issue. They tend to sort of be in a separate category all themselves. And I, I love what the Truth Over Tribe book says. It says, pledging allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. What they're trying to say is, listen, if we're really gonna be Christians, we cannot just go along with an agenda that says, I'm here in this political tribe, I'm here on this political position, and we're the good guys. Rather, we have to be thinkers. Rather, we have to discern where do things line up with Jesus and where do things not line up with Jesus. Miller and Simon, the guys from Truth Over Tribes, say this. They say, alternative truths come in many forms but the most popular variety are abstract, unprovable theories, such as critical theory, it's talking about secular critical theory, and conspiracy theories. One comes from the ivory tower of academia and the other from the internet underbelly. Both secular critical theory and conspiracy theories want their truth to rule the world. Both theories deny objective reality. Both theories invite you into a Ferris wheel of circular logic that once entered is difficult to exit. Now, maybe you're offended, but guess what? Everyone should be a little offended. Um, Gibbony Ware and Butler from the Ann campaign go on to say this. In many cases, our perspective has been so thoroughly shaped or even discipled 
by worldly ideologies that we mistake our flawed ideological positions for Christian positions. What both of these are getting at is that so often when we are are intoxicated that we are right and the other side is wrong, that viewpoint, that contempt takes over our lives. And instead of the good news of Jesus being the good news, the good news in our heart becomes, I'm right and they're wrong. And we've never even bothered to hear what the other people think. Now, I'm not saying you have to accept what the other people think. I'm not saying you have to join their tribe. But wouldn't it be good to actually know what they think? So often in our country right now, everything is about tearing down the other side. One of my friends who's a pastor calls this anti-vision. In other words, if you turn it on Fox News or you turn on CNN, it's mostly about how crazy the other side is. There's not a compelling vision for the future. There's not a like, hey, here's where we could go. It's like, let's just show how wrong the other side is. It's anti-vision. But here at New City, we don't want to be about that. We don't want to be defined by what we're against We want to be defined by what we're for. We're for the gospel. We're not primarily here because someone out there is wrong, but because Jesus is right. And and that's why we want to have this donuts and discussion afterwards. If you didn't hear earlier, we're having just a time where you can come and talk, and we're just going to talk about good guys and bad guys. We're going to have a good discussion afterwards, so feel free to stick around. See, if you begin to see the other side with such contempt that you say, I'm excused from loving them, you've missed the gospel. You've missed the gospel. Because the gospel says this, there are no good guys. There's not good guys and bad guys, there's just bad guys. See, we tend to look at the story and because the Pharisee's so judgmental, there's part of us that can go, you know what? I like the tax collector because at least he knows like he's a bad guy. And thank God that we're not like the Pharisees. But do you see that subtle switch that just happened? We're doing exactly what the Pharisee did to the tax collector. We're just doing it to the Pharisee. (laughs) See, if you think you or your side is the tax collector and other people are Pharisees, you're more like the Pharisee than you're able to see. It's not that the Pharisee is now the bad guy and the tax collector is the good guy. There are no good guys. See, if you're here and you're listening to the sermon and you go, you know what? I know someone who really needs to hear this. Guess what? You've missed it. You've missed it. If you say, I know someone that really needs to hear this, you've missed it. Because here's the thing. Both the Pharisee and the tax collector need the mercy of God. Both of them are evil. Both of them participate with a group that does evil, but both of them individually are evil. See, see, that's why Christianity is so different. Christianity doesn't call out the bad guys for being bad. Christianity calls out the good guys and says, you're not really that good. Everybody needs the mercy of God. And that's how Jesus tells this story, really to disrupt us and to disorient us, but ultimately to reorient us on him. See, if you're not yet a Christian and you come here and you think, 
you guys are just the people at church who said, we're going to get this right. We're, we're, you guys think you're the good guys. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about us gathering here together saying, we are the bad guys who need God's mercy. It's not just theoretical that like we have done a few things, we've told a white lie here and there, that if you really look at our lives, we have not followed the Ten Commandments. We have not lived morally. We have at times been unjust. We have ignored the law of God. Oh God, have mercy on us sinners. See, really, that's how Jesus renovates us. And that's what your marriage needs. And that's what our culture needs. And that's what this church needs is really a sense of humility before the God of the universe. Not something where we fake, but something where when we come into the presence of God, we really see his perfection and his beauty and his righteousness. And in the midst of that, we really see our flaws and our wrongdoing and our evil, whether it be in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And like the tax collector, that should humble us. It should bring us to the point where we say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a bad guy. But it should bring us confidence. Do you notice how the story ends? The tax collector says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus confirms, God has mercy on sinners. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The person who thinks he's the good guy will be humiliated before God. But the person who humbles himself before God because he knows he's the bad guy, that's the one who's declared righteous. The unjust person is declared just even though they haven't been just. The immoral person is declared righteous even though they have not been righteous because of the mercy of God, shown to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ went to the cross and was hung on that tree, on that wooden structure, as a criminal. He took our place. He hung on the cross and everyone said, there's a bad guy. And they thought he was. But Jesus, the one who was perfectly God, perfectly man, he had never sinned. He wasn't just not a bad guy. He was the best guy. And he took our place on the cross so that when we turn to him, when we humble ourselves before God, we can have confidence in his mercy. Jesus paid the price you needed to pay. Jesus died the death that bad guys die so that in his resurrection, you could have new life. So what's your takeaway? What's your takeaway today? If this really affects you, you will have more honesty about the darkness in your own heart and life. You will also have more confidence in God's mercy to reach you in your darkness. And you will have more love for other people, even if you have nothing in common with even if you deem that they are evil because you see the evil in your own life and you see how Jesus has been merciful. 
Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.